Hear the word of the Lord to us from Mark 7. Jesus got up and went away from there to the region of Tyre. And when he entered a house, he wanted no one to know of it. Yet he could not escape notice. But after hearing of him, a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit immediately came and fell at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile of the Syrophoenician race. And she kept asking him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he was saying to her, let the children be satisfied first, for it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered and said to him, yes, Lord, but even the dogs under the table feed on the children's crumbs. And he said to her, because of this answer, go, the demon has gone out of your daughter. And going back to her home, she found the child lying on the bed, the demon having left. Again, he went out from the region of Tyre and came through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee within the region of the Decapolis. They brought to him one who was deaf and spoke with difficulty, and they implored him to lay his hand on him. Jesus took him aside from the crowd by himself and put his fingers into his ears. And after spitting, he touched his tongue with the saliva and looking up to heaven with a deep sigh. He said to him, Ephatha, that is be opened. And his ears were opened and the impediment of his tongue was removed. And he began speaking plainly. And he gave them orders not to tell anyone, but the more he ordered them, the more widely they continued to proclaim it. They were utterly astonished, saying, he has done all things well. He even, he makes even the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. Amen. Thank you. Good morning. When have you felt like you did not fit? Now, some of you, it's probably junior high, high school, were some of the most extreme times. You know, when you feel like you don't belong, like, I just shouldn't have come, I shouldn't be here, I just don't fit. I felt that a number of times. One of the most extreme times was my first few months as a student at Stanford University. I came from a small town in Oregon, and somehow I got into Stanford, showed up, and I was thoroughly intimidated by the people there. It didn't help that I was talking with some of the guys the first couple of weeks, and they said, and in the meantime, I'm just struggling to try to figure it out and keep up in classes and studying all the time. And some of the guys are saying, you know, Stanford sure is easy. It's a lot easier than high school. <laughs> well... I know now that was all bluster, but at the time, it was thoroughly intimidating. And I thought, what in the world am I doing here? It took me the better part of a year to realize, you know what, I can keep up. I can do okay. But we all have times like that where we feel like, I just don't fit. Maybe some of you felt that way when you walked in this morning. I hope not. 
I hope this feels like home to you, but we do feel those way, that way at times. Well, the Pharisees in the New Testament period were really good at making people feel like they didn't fit. <laughs> you see, the Jews were very convinced they were the chosen people and you needed to be born as a Jew if you were going to fit. But more than that, you needed to follow all the rules. And if you don't, you don't belong. You're an outsider. You don't fit. Your birth and your religious conformity determine your acceptance before God, was what they taught. Well, in today's passage, we look at a woman who knew she didn't fit, who knew she didn't belong, not in the Jewish world, but it did not keep her from coming to Jesus. And Jesus' response to her shows us that what Jesus is truly looking for in his followers is those who come with humility, with brokenness, not with a commitment to doing it all right to be accepted, but rather having a humble and trusting heart, someone who is truly poor in spirit. And for those kinds of people, Jesus has wide open arms and welcomes them. Pray with me. Lord, as we look together at this passage, I know there's some in this room that have struggled with what it means to really feel accepted by you. I pray, Lord, that you'd speak to each of our hearts because each of us fall into trying to perform for you. But may we today understand grace, your love, your care in a deeper way, perhaps, than ever before. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you came for the Jews, but you also came to be a light for the Gentiles, for us. So be with us now. May your word have power, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So remember the context. Rod has been teaching us through the last several weeks, and he's talked about how Jesus is beginning to challenge the attitudes of the Pharisees, the Pharisees who were teaching, hey, if you want to be accepted by God, you need to follow the rituals like the washing of hands, for example. Or you need to follow the dietary laws. And Jesus is challenging those things to open the door for people to see that there's much more to what God offers to us in his grace and his love. It's not keeping man-made rules that make you acceptable to God, he says, and it's not keeping the dietary laws of the Old Testament either. So what does he want? Well, I think we see it in this passage. I want to show you a map just to kind of set the context here. In verse 24, it says, Jesus got up and went away from there to the region of Tyre. And when he had entered a house, he wanted no one to know of it, yet he could not escape notice. So the region of Tyre, I know it may be hard to see in the back, but the blue and the orange, you know, BSU colors, by the way, uh, that's Israel. That's the nation of Israel. And Jesus has been hanging out, especially in Galilee, by the Sea of Galilee, up in the orange part in Galilee. But it says he left there and went to the region of Tyre. You can see Tyre up on the coast, on the Mediterranean Sea. He goes to Gentile lands. And for the next several passages, he spends time there in Gentile lands. We're told in this verse why he did that. He wanted to get away from the crowds. They were beginning to press on him and demand that he heal 
and they were trying to make him a popular hero now to perhaps lead them in a rebellion against Rome. But he leaves to go to a Gentile territory, and it appears he did so so that he could focus on his 12 disciples and really train them, knowing that they were the ones who would carry on his ministry when he left. But it says when he showed up against his wishes, people found out he was there. They'd heard about him, and people came. So he's in Gentile lands, and along comes this woman. Let me read verse 25 and 26 again. But after hearing of him, a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit immediately came and fell at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile of the Syrophoenician race, and she kept asking him to cast a demon out of her daughter. So along comes this woman. She heard he was there. She came immediately, it says. Here's a woman who's watched her daughter experience all the torture of being demon-possessed. We know not from this passage, maybe, but from others, that when demon possession took over a life, it would try to cast it into the fire, try to destroy it, try to harm it in all kinds of ways. There was shrieking, there was pain, there was difficulty in this Mother's heart was broken as she watched her little daughter tortured. We don't know this for sure, but I suspect she tried everything she could, according to her culture, to try to find a way to bring healing for her little daughter. You get the sense of a mother's pain here. She's a hurting, desperate mother. She just wants her daughter to be whole, to be healed. And she hears of this traveling rabbi, this Jewish rabbi, and she thinks, this is my last hope. Says she immediately went. She couldn't even bring her daughter because her daughter probably is locked away for her own safety. And she runs and she falls at his feet. And in the text, in the Greek tense here, she kept begging him over and over, please heal my daughter. She kept asking him, And I could just picture Jesus standing there and she's saying, please, please, please heal my daughter. Please help me. But this woman would be the last person a good Jewish rabbi would want to help. (laughs) She had many strikes against her. For one, she's a Gentile, right? She's a Syrian woman. Syrian Phoenician woman. Why would a Jewish rabbi help her? She's not one of the chosen race. She has a demon in her family. In that culture, anybody who had a demon in their family clearly was cursed by God. This family was anathema. Why in the world would he want to help her? Jesus has a plan. He went there to focus on his disciples. She is an interruption to his plans. Why should he take the time to help her? She's a woman. Women in their culture obviously had no social power or political power. They weren't considered valuable as men. And she's unnamed, which emphasizes the fact that in her culture and to the disciples, she was unimportant, not even worthy of a name. The commentator James Edwards puts it this way, of all the people who approach Jesus in the Gospel of Mark, This individual has the most against her from a Jewish perspective. 
Verse 26 reads like a crescendo of demerit. She is a woman, a Greek Gentile, from infamous pagans of Syrian Phoenicia. They were known for their religious paganism. A crescendo of demerit. (laughs) Just a comment. She's Syrian. Now, Tyre and Sidon are in modern-day Lebanon, but that's a Syrian region next to Syria. Today, there are over 3 million Syrian refugees in the world. These refugees have lost their homes, their jobs, their friends, in many cases, their families. They're desperate, like this woman. They're needy, they're hurting, and yet there's protests all over Europe saying, we don't want you here. (laughs) Stay away from here. You might disrupt our world. Well, the United States has graciously said, we'll take 10,000 of those over 3 million refugees. We'll take 10,000. And there's already been protests in the U.S. ahead of time in certain communities saying, we don't want you here. (laughs) Stay away. You may not assimilate with us. You may keep your own traditions. And we don't like that. You're different. Or you might change our way of life. We might have to learn something about you. Or you might be terrorists. Brothers and sisters, these are refugees. These are people who are victims of terrorists, who are broken and hurting. Their lives have been destroyed. We need to have a heart of compassion like Jesus does. By the way, I love our refugee ministry. Nick and Laura Armstrong are helping us learn how to reach out and care for the hurting. These refugees who have come from broken lives and broken nations, broken homes. How does Jesus respond to the Syrian woman? Well, uh, not like I would expect. (laughs) Not like the disciples would expect. Uh, Listen to this. Verse 27. And he was saying to her, let the children be satisfied first, for it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Now, I don't know about you, but that really strikes me as harsh. (laughs) What does Jesus do? He insults her, this hurting mother who comes and is in need and is desperate for her daughter. He insults her. Now, Some commentators have said, well, he uses a diminutive form of the word dog, like little dog. And, you know, that's probably more like a house dog, like a house pet. So he's not quite being so harsh when he calls her a dog. It's like a little pet. But you know what? As I've looked it up, I don't see any evidence of that. They didn't have pets like we do, like the teller at the bank that I like to go to. And I was talking to the teller and she was was saying, how you doing? And she said, well kind of hard. My dog's sick. I said, what's wrong? Well, we've had x-rays. We've had all kinds of things. I think it's a slip disc. I may need to take him to Houston for surgery. And I'm thinking, you would spend thousands and thousands on your dog? And she said, absolutely. Like part of the family. Well, that may be our culture, but that's not their culture. They didn't have dogs for pets. In fact, here's what rabbis said about dogs. Dogs are the most despicable, insolent, and miserable of creatures. (laughs) 
And to use the diminutive just makes it worse. You little mutt. Wow. You see, it just adds to the insult. Jesus is essentially saying, I came for the Jews first. I came to the Jews first. Not for little dogs like you. Why would Jesus insult her in this way? (laughs) This is jarring for our ears, right? And yet when I think about the way Jesus deals with me sometimes, it begins to make sense. You see, insults expose our pride, don't they? (laughs) Insults cause us to react because our pride has been offended. And I have found that Jesus doesn't really coddle to my pride. In fact, Jesus knows that pride is the biggest barrier to trusting God. Pride is our greatest enemy. As C.S. Lewis put it, pride is our greatest sin. It's what keeps us on the throne instead of submitting and surrendering to him as Lord. So Jesus is not afraid to expose our self-centeredness so we can be broken of it. A few years back, I was in this room for Coal Valley Christian School. They asked me to do a chapel, and the first through sixth graders were in here sitting on the floor, and I worked really hard on this chapel. I really wanted to connect with the kids, and so I had props and all kinds of things. I was working at it, and I I was excited about really helping them understand some biblical truth. It's probably a reason why I don't work with children anymore. But... (laughs) I worked really hard at it, and at the end of it, my little friend, Bailey, about a third grader at the time, she was standing with her friends, and I went over, and I don't know what if I said something, or, but I was kind of like, you know, what'd you think? Did you learn anything? Something like that, I think I said to her. She's standing with her friends, and she looks up, to me, up at me, and she says, are those teeth real gold? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Pride goes before a fall. (laughs) Jesus is not afraid to expose our pride, our arrogance, our self-centeredness, our self-dependence, our desire to parade around and look good in other people's eyes. He's not afraid to expose that and insult that because he knows that's what keeps us from him. Now, because of her answer and her heart, I don't think she had a problem with pride. But the disciples did. And I think this jarring response that he gives is for their sake and ours. To help us realize it's humility that Jesus is looking for, that he longs for. A humility that's willing to come with an attitude that says, yeah, I'm a dog. I do not deserve to have you help me, Jesus. I'm not a good Jew. I haven't jumped through all the hoops. But I am coming to you simply on the basis of your mercy and grace. Nothing else. I have nothing else to bring. Yes, I'm a dog. But I'm clinging to you. Please. Please help me. What a contrast to those who are trying to earn Jesus' favor by washing hands in the right way, by keeping all the dietary laws, by making sure you keep the Sabbath, all the little rules, don't walk too many steps, don't do this, don't do that, focusing on our own behavior. 
And what Jesus is trying to do is break through all that focus and emphasis on what we do to gain acceptance from God and simply look at him and his mercy and his love and his grace and say, I can only come on that basis. I am helpless to save myself. I am a dog. (laughs) But I'm coming to you for mercy. She gets it. (laughs) She gets the new covenant. She gets the fact that we cannot come on the basis of how religious we are, how good we are, but only because of the cross. Now, the cross hadn't happened yet, but yet that's what's amazing about her is she gets it even before the cross. That it's grace and grace alone that makes us able to come. Do you feel out of place this morning? Do you feel out of place before God like you don't fit, like you can't come into his presence, like you don't measure up? Well, remember this woman. If you come to him in humility, yeah, I don't deserve your grace, but I ask for it. I plead for it. He will not refuse you. In fact, (laughs) he will embrace you. He has wide open arms for anyone, anyone who will come in humility. And then Jesus modeled it for us by going to the cross. He showed us what true humility is like when he emptied himself of his own rights and in humility went to the cross. That's the Syrian woman. But we have another story here. The Decapolis man. She showed us that Jesus will not turn away a humble heart. He shows us that Jesus will not turn away a helpless heart. A helpless heart. I'm going to show the map again. Highlight something else for you. It says, if you read carefully, verse 31, Again, he went out from the region of Tyre and came through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee, within the region of Decapolis. You can see yellow is the Decapolis. Tyre's up on the coast, but further up the coast is Sidon. If you were trying to get to Decapolis, would you go further north? But it says Jesus did. He went further north and then had to cut across through modern Syria, and then down to the Decapolis. He purposely avoided the Jewish territories. Again, Jesus is focusing on his disciples. He's trying to stay out of the crowds of the Jews that are trying to make him king. He's trying to make a point to the disciples, I believe, and to us, that yes, he came for the Jews, but he also came for the Gentiles. He was prophesied in Isaiah that he would come and be a light to the Gentiles. And he is living that out before their eyes. So he comes to the Decapolis, Gentile area. And it says, they brought a man to him, one who was deaf and spoke with difficulty. And they implored him to lay his hands on him. Jesus took him aside from the crowd by himself and healed him. They brought him a man. He's deaf. He can't talk well, obviously, if he can't hear. He's brought by others. He's helpless. He can't help himself. He's another outsider like the Syrian woman. In that culture, the only way he could survive is if family helped him or friends helped him or if he begged to try to survive. In our culture, we look down on people like this. You know, we think, well, the government can take care of them. Welfare can take care of them. Because, as some say, God helps those who help themselves. 
That's in the Bible somewhere, right? (laughs) No, it's not in the Bible. (laughs) God helps those who come in utter helplessness and brokenness and neediness like this man who came completely dependent. But here's what really strikes me about this passage. It says they brought him. Who is they? They brought him. We're not told in the text who this is. But there was another time earlier when Jesus was in the Decapolis. Do you remember? Chapter 5, when he cast out the Gerasene demoniac and he cast the legions out and they went into the pigs and the pigs ran down and drowned themselves in the Sea of Galilee in the Decapolis area. And the people of that region said, Go away! We don't want your type around here, Jesus, because this kind of power from God, we just we don't even get. We we don't want you here. And listen to the end of that section in chapter five. The garrison man who'd been healed of all these demons cast out. They he, he came and said, I want to follow you, Jesus. And Jesus said to him, verse 19, He says he did not let him follow him, but he said to him, go home to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in Decapolis what great things Jesus had done for him. And everyone was amazed. This man's testimony going throughout the Decapolis and saying, Jesus did this amazing thing for me. The mercy of God on me has been amazing. Changed their attitude. So now when Jesus shows up, what do they do? (laughs) They bring their friend and say, wow, Jesus, we need your help. I'm just struck by that. If we simply like the garrison demoniac are willing to say, I just want to tell people about what Jesus has done in my life and his mercy on me. God will use that to change hearts and prepare hearts for Jesus to show up. So they brought this man. And Jesus does what they ask. He puts his fingers in their ears. He spits and puts the spittle on his tongue. Why would he do that? Obviously, it's very symbolic. Healing comes from Jesus' touch. Healing comes from what comes out of Jesus' mouth. It's the fluid It's a little graphic here, but it's the fluid from Jesus's body that brings life and healing. In Mark 14, we discover what that fluid is. It's the blood of the cross. And then Jesus speaks and he is healed. What comes out of Jesus's mouth brings life. So what do these two stories together tell us? Whom does God embrace with his wide open arms? (laughs) What is the essence of the gospel? Well, the Jews said it. You must obey the rules. You got to do what's right. You got to be religious. You got to measure up. And I find that many of us as believers so easily fall back like the Galatians into doing that very thing. We, we think there's rules to follow and we, we draw lines of acceptability. We all have them where we think, well, that person's not really in because they do that and And we draw these lines to keep people out. But Jesus is turning that idea upside down. Jesus is looking for those who, like the woman, are humble. Yeah, I'm a dog, but I'm coming to you for mercy. 
Jesus is looking for those like the Decapolis men who are so helpless. He doesn't do anything in this passage except get drugged to Jesus so he can be healed. That's who Jesus embraces. Those are the ones his arms open wide for. So what do we learn from this passage? I want to highlight three truths that we learn from this. Number one, I think Mark's emphasizing that Jesus really is the Messiah. He is the chosen one. He's not the kind of Messiah that the Jews were looking for, someone to come and raise up an army, defeat the Romans and throw them out. No, he's the one who came to open blind eyes, open deaf ears, and loosen tongues. The one that was prophesied back all through the Old Testament, I want to read one passage from Isaiah chapter 35. Isaiah 35, verses 5 and 6 say this. Let me start in verse 4. Say to those with anxious heart, take courage, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. The recompense of the Lord will come. What happens when he comes with vengeance? He will save you. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute will shout for joy. For waters will break forth in the wilderness and streams in the Arabah, in the desert of people's lives. It's prophesied when the Messiah shows up, lives are going to be changed. Jesus is the Messiah who was promised. The second truth I want to emphasize out of that from this passage is that the signs of the kingdom come, that the kingdom is here, that Jesus has shown up in our world now, that he is alive and he reigns today. The signs of that kingdom being here are not political at this point, are they? They're not military. They're not shown by Jesus giving us an evangelical president or something like that. The signs that God has shown up and the kingdom has come are threefold. Number one, freed hearts, freed lives. Like this young girl who had a demon who was set free. See, when God shows up in a life, any life, when the kingdom has come in your heart and you've relinquished and surrendered to him, one of the things you begin to experience pretty quickly from his kingdom having come is you begin to be set free from the things that abound you. It's a process. It's a lifelong process. I get that. But there should be this sense of freedom from, from anger, perhaps, resentment, unforgiveness. Maybe there's demon influence, sinful patterns, addictions, selfishness, demandingness, self-centeredness. I could go on and on. But when the kingdom has come in a life, there begins to be this freedom. Secondly, there are opened ears. When God shows up in a life, the, the wax melts away and, and a person begins to understand truth that they didn't understand before. The scriptures begin to make sense. Not, not that you understand anything, but you begin to feel that this is God's love letter to me and he is speaking to me. That's evidence that the kingdom has shown up in your heart. When you begin to hear God speaking to you through his word, through teaching, through other believers that share truth with you. You begin to sense that God's penetrating your foolishness and changing your thinking in line with 
his. And then third sign is loosened tongue. You begin to speak more about Jesus. You become like the garrison demoniac who couldn't help but talk about Jesus. Ephesians 5 says, when you're walking in the Spirit, your tongue gets loosened. Paul puts it this way in Ephesians chapter 5, beginning of verse 18. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. What does it look like when you're filled with the Spirit, when the kingdom's at work in your life? Well, you are speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father, and being subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Notice how many of those things are verbal, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns, always giving thanks and in your heart making melody to the Lord. A loosened tongue is a sign that the Spirit of God has invaded your life. The third truth I want to highlight and the last one that we see from this passage is that God loves the world, the whole world, and especially the broken and needy of the world. Those who we see as outsiders. Just got an email this week from Tom and Melissa Manning, who are workers in the Middle East. Tom writes, a few weeks ago, we asked you to pray for our patients at a newer sanatorium, particularly two Sudani men, that the Lord would open their hearts to the truth of his salvation. Praise the Lord, he did. Jesus appeared to Yusuf in a dream. Yusuf suddenly began to float upwards as he lay on his back, sleeping in his bed. He quickly approached the stars and galaxies until they were so large and brilliant that he was nearly blinded. It was then that Jesus, that Yesu, Yusuf saw Jesus. Jesus took Yusuf by the arm and led him into an enormous room. He said, this place is reserved for sinners. Jesus then began to open a large valve out of which fire lapped into the room. As the valve opened and fire increased, Yusuf became very much afraid. He looked to Jesus, who then pulled him safely out of the room. Yusuf awoke in a cold sweat. Yeah, I'll bet. <laughs> he could no longer doubt the reality of Jesus, but decided now to turn to him and believe the gospel. God loves the world. Verse 34, it says, Jesus, before he healed the man, he looked and he sighed with a deep sigh. That word really is a word that means to have a deep disappointment over a broken world, an anguish over a broken world. Jesus anguishes over this kind of world that is broken. And he longs for all to come. He stands with open arms for those that get it. That is, those who are willing to admit they don't deserve his grace. But they come with humility asking for it. His arms are open wide for those who come with helplessness. I bring nothing. So all they have to cling to is his mercy. These are the ones that Jesus embraces. And at the cross, he, he spread his arms wide and he said, I want all to come, those who are weary, those who are helpless, those who are broken, those who are needy. 
You don't need to be religious. Just come and I'll change your life. But just come. And then he died. And so the cross makes the way for all of us. It's the place where we're all come and must bow at the foot of the cross and say, I bring nothing. I come on the basis of your mercy. And do you know what he does? He embraces us. Because that's the kind of God he is. All he asks is that we admit our need and that we come. And then he will do the rest. Let's pray. Praise you, Lord, for this passage that so clearly shows us your heart for the humble and the needy. And Lord, we confess that too often our pride gets in the way. Thank you that you're not afraid to insult our pride, to break through our arrogance and our self-dependence so that we can come to you in our helplessness and find life and freedom and opened ears and loosened tongues. Thank you that you set us free. And we praise you for that now in Jesus' name. Amen.